Welcome to episode 105 of No Challenge Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, live from Rome, and holding it down in the U.S. of A. is my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm pretty good. Rome is exhausting. How full of... Yeah, how, well, yes. So, Duh. But I mean, exhausting awake. because Rome is being exhausting, or because you're kind of cheese over gelato i mean the pictures from everybody from rome regarding the food have been really unfair to those of us at home sorry about that i mean no my blood type is affirmatively mozzarella at this point which is fine (laughs) i think it will suit me well for life expectancy purposes no i mean it's been great food rome i've said this before to people here when i was trying to because everyone more than any other tournament people like sit around talking about how this tournament makes them feel here (laughs) <laughs> and what what I, what eventually the conclusion I eventually came to is that Rome just has so much more in both the pro and con columns than any other tournament. Like usually yeah. pros and cons are pretty normal, but this one just has so many cons about it. We'll get into some of those later. I mean, obviously from the media side, it made it incredibly hard for us. Um, and then the pros are so cool too. I mean, all the history, the soul of this tournament is unbelievable. There had there has to be a lot of pros going on. To keep everybody coming back here. It succeeds despite of itself because it really does succeed despite itself. Yeah, even on site, like some of the courts are amazing. But then the other part, I mean, it's just a total mixed bag. I saw somebody scrawled, I don't know if it was a reporter, but on one of the more dilapidated bathroom stalls in the press room, somebody scrawled third world country on one of the <laughs> toilet paper dispenser like holders. And I was like, yeah, that's a feeling I could I could feel myself having in here too so on this show we'll talk about rome uh the big players in it novak fed rafa stan on the women's side obviously sharapova carla serena etc etc and we will set up for the french open which is coming up real fast so let's get ready to get slam prepared Uh, Courtney, I wanted to start the show with something that happened after the tennis ended, which to me was it's not a wasn't a major moment that probably most networks weren't even showing, I'm guessing, at this point. But after Novak Djokovic won the title over Roger Federer, six four, six three, in a match that was nowhere near as close as the score, um, Novak just seemed totally in control of it once he got that once he got that break late in the first. Uh, Novak Djokovic nearly ended his French Open hopes. With a bottle of Moe Shandam. Oh. <laughs> it totally, I just, I only just now put together that there are so many Moe Shandon jokes. Oh, yeah. For some reason. It just didn't occur to me at the time. But yeah. Yes, he did. He almost did. He corked himself on the nose, less than an inch from his eye. Nose and forehead. And I tweeted, nose and forehead. And I tweeted, like, after it happened, like... 
if Rafa Nadal goes on to win the would would have gone on to win the French Open because Novak Djokovic corked himself after going 22 and 0 over the his last 22 matches, winning his fourth straight Masters title, like basically winning everything and celebrating, and inadvertently like knocked himself out of the French Open. Like I give up on tennis writing, like because at this point it's no longer sports writing; it's like Hollywood blockbuster writing because this stuff is like sci-fi and totally weird and illogical. And um, that would have been a plot twist that not even Shonda Rhimes could come up with. <laughs> it would have been. Not even Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> it would have been ridiculous. Like the most like sort of Grecian way you could ever possibly <laughs> take yourself out of a sports contention by celebrating with a champagne popping. Especially that timing, like right before. I know like it happened before. Like Lindsey Vaughn injured herself at some point. But she was trying to do the fancy champagne thing with the sword you know oh yeah like which is much higher stakes um but novak yeah this, yeah. this, this was, was just, just boneheadedness and he was shaking yeah, up the like, bottle before to make it like extra oh, pressure that's what i was wondering it. yeah he was, was like jokingly because, shaking up the bottle to like towards you know playing with the camera people being like oh, i'm gonna spray it and so it loaded it up even more and then he's sort of looking down at it as he opens it and gosh I think like less than an inch away show... from ending his french open yeah, I think it's indicative of um, Novak Djokovic's confidence these days. I think he's a bit—he's feeling a bit a little invincible. He's looking a little invincible um, on the court. Um, no one's really come close to really making him sweat too much um, when he gets to the business end of tournaments. So you know, maybe it's all kind of that subconscious thing of like nothing can hurt me. But it did remind me a little bit of uh, uh, the final episode, if you've ever seen it, of Band of Brothers, this HBO miniseries about World War II. And the final episode is about the fact that, you know, uh, the Allies had, you know, Germany had surrendered and the Allies were kind of getting everything in order. But soldiers were still, like, dying because of just, like, friendly fire because they were, like, getting drunk and, like, getting into stupid fights with each other and, with each other and shooting each other and whatever. You just had drunken soldiers with am live ammunition everywhere. And it did kind of make me think like that. Like, all of these people who are waiting to go home and they finally survived the war. And then they just do something completely boneheaded to end their chance of any of that. But I was in a morbid, dark place. That, that was dark. But I do think... It was, <laughs> but it did make me think of it. I was like, dude, like, you're done. You're good. You survived the clay season with no injuries. You're undefeated. You're going into the tournament that you want to win so badly in really good shape. Like, don't shoot yourself in the face with a bottle of Moe Shandon. <laughs> That's all you can ever ask for a person. Um, yeah, Djokovic was very solid in the tournament. He had some early hiccups. It wasn't like totally rolling at record-setting pace. I mean, he did lose a set to Thomas Bellucci early on and things like that, um, and didn't have straight, super straightforward matches um, against Nishikori later on as well. But I think for me, Djokovic really, really solidified his spot at at the favorite spot for me in this tournament. Um, he, like he said, I asked him afterwards, like, do you think you need to, like, go up a gear to win the French Open? He was like, nah, you know, I think if I just keep doing what I'm doing, like, I'm good. And I totally agree with that. I don't, I think that he has to, if he stays on the rails, he will get to French Open Wonderland. He has to do something himself to disrupt the current momentum he has. That's how I see yeah, it. I, think I really think he controls yeah, no, his destiny. And the one who's going to, to put it clichéishly the one who can beat him is himself yeah i agree with all of that in terms of the logic i i think that he is playing at a level that is good enough to win uh the french open um 
you know, there have already been those questions about where's Courtney on the Rafa panic button. And uh, and so much of it is is is, you know, I think that Novak is absolutely playing well enough to win the French Open. He doesn't need to do much more, um, whether he can hold that level and sustain it through pressure and all these sorts of things. That's really all entirely on his hands. There's no kind of raw data that you can look at outside of Novak to point to anyone else who can really derail him based on the way that they're playing. Um, and uh, so there is that. There Not is even undefeated still- Andy Murray? Not even, well, you know, I don't think so. I mean, if Andy can't figure him out on hard court, I don't really know that he can do it on clay either, but yeah. and also in a best of five situation. Um, it would have been interesting if, to see those two play um, on clay, which we didn't get to see. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's, I think we can all kind of agree that as ridiculous as the whole Andy Murray wins Madrid thing uh, and 10-0 and on clay is, I mean, was he thoroughly tested? Probably not entirely. I mean, Rafa was really not great at all in that Madrid final. So whereas you feel like with Novak, he has kind of played all of his contenders when they've played at least, you know, good, good, you know, average to good. And he's beaten them pretty handily for so- the most part. So here's the we we've talked about it so many times. I was joking before we should have a Courtney panic button jingle at this point. But before the draw comes out, I'll give you one last sort of chance to reaffirm or or switch if you want your position after Rome, after they all the relevant players have hung up their rackets on the men's side going into France. Who are you picking to win the tournament? I'm sticking with Rafa Nadal. There you go. You know who's on your team? Your uh, what did I miss to say? Federer is actually team Courtney on this. He was very clear afterwards. Maybe just Roger and I actually that. agree on something. I'm shocked. I know, but he was like, to "No, first. it takes a long time to race, like ten years." That's what Roger was saying. So, I think yeah. I mean, I, I my logic behind it is 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 that. And like I said, this isn't a situation where like if I say if I saw people picking Novak, I'd be like, oh, you're dumb. No, you're very smart. All of the data points point that way. The eyeball test points that way as well. Novak's just playing the best ball. He is incredibly confident. All these sorts of things. I've just been burned by Novak before in instances where I have picked him based off of um, results, recency results, um, whether it was 2011 or last year. Um, I thought I picked him to 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 win last year. Um, and granted, Rafa's playing probably definitely at a level that's lower this year than he was last year and back in 2011. You just kind of never know. And so at, for me, it's not that I don't think that Novak can win. I definitely obviously do. I just, I, yeah, I mean, logic-wise, I kind of agree with Roger. I think that I'm just siding with the fact that, you know, to win a Grand Slam is super, super hard. To do it nine out of ten years is even tougher um, and that that shows a different level of confidence once you hit once you hit that surface and um, and how good you are and, and I do think that okay taking two sets off of Rafa is one thing I think taking three sets is a completely different thing on clay only one man has I believe ever done that uh, well no I guess back when they were best of five masters it must have happened at some no point. I don't think you ever lost the best of five masters final. That I, off the top yeah, of my I'm head. not sure. That's why I, yeah. that's the only caveat. So if I'm wrong on that, then I'm wrong on that. But I'm at least in my head, the only guy who's ever been able to win three sets in a single match against Rafael Nadal was Robin Sodling. It happened once. It's never happened again. So I'm going to side with Rafa on this one out of respect. My sort so, of my sort of devil's advocate on the best of five point is that all the losses he had in clay were in straight sets. Like it wasn't like he was, you know, people weren't lose beating him. Point. 
just eking it out. The, he had he lost lopsided matches pretty much all four times, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing is like what the, the, thing, the thing that concerns me and I, I, I about Rafa, if we're going to talk about him, that, um, you know, I raised last week when I said, OK, you know, we're kind of at orange alert. You know, the DEF CON levels are going up. Um, there's much more concern about Rafa now than there was, you know, um, after Monte Carlo for sure. Um, and the thing that does concern me is not just not his level per se. I mean, he is at times being able to hit the level that he is used to. The issue is just like from match to match, it's not reliable. He could play a great match and then play a crappy match. And so that's where, you know, you start to worry about whether or not he can pull off seven matches over two weeks and play a sustained level and build towards a level that he can sustain over the final three matches that he's likely going to have to play in Paris. That's a big question mark. I think that if I were to just use my brain, I'd say, no, Rafa can't do it based off of everything that I've seen on clay. But but I'm still going to pick Rafa. Um because, yeah, I think that what he's done in Paris is just absolutely incredible. And it's for someone else to dethrone him than for someone else to be anointed before Rafa's, you know, um, kind of taken that loss. So, yeah. Let's go to a question from Usama Polani, who asks us, do you think Djokovic would actually rather have Nadal in his quarter? As that way, Nadal might still be rusty and have not gained momentum. So one of the big stories through the part of this through excuse me through this week was Nadal's seating at the French Open, and when he lost in the quarterfinals to Stan Wawrinka, it clinched that he would not be at a top four seed. Fell well short of it. Could be number seven if Ronich enters. Uh, number six if he doesn't. Still some doubt with Ronich having foot issues recently, but six and seven for draw purposes don't make a difference. Djokovic, has, Djokovic said that he wished that Nadal's seating had gotten bumped up and that he'd rather play somebody else. But do you think, Courtney, that in some ways a early meeting with Rafa is more desirable for a player than a late round meeting? An er, middle round, I guess, is really a quarterfinal, not early by much stretch. I don't buy it. I think that if and if Novak doesn't have to play Rafael Nadal en route to the French Open title, I think that's probably the best case scenario regardless. And yeah. uh, whether it happens, I mean, so I think that on the whole, he doesn't want to see Rafa in his quarter. And if he plays if he plays Rafa in the final, I think that he has to be confident, too, that he's in a good position, Novak Djokovic, um, in terms of his game and all that sort of stuff. And I still think that even if Rafa plays himself into the final and those two meet, that there's still going to be a big question mark as to whether or not what his or just where his level will be on that given day. So I don't know. I don't really see that. I think that if no, if Rafa is on the other side of the draw, Novak Djokovic will be smiling a little bit more than if Rafa was in his half of the draw, let alone quarter. If Rafa loses to Novak in the final, he will have lost to Novak in all four slam finals, which is kind of an accomplishment. That's a slam of a sort. Yeah, kind of. Venus did that with Serena, yeah. runner-up slam. You know, huh. happens. Cool. Not, a, not something you want, but a silver slam is still something. No. <laughs> but how about you? Do you do you think that Novak cares? Um, I think I agree, totally agree with you. Pragmatically, you just don't want to play Rafa. You want to see, if you're Novak, you want Rafa to go out in the third round to Fanini. Or whatever other sort of scenario there is that doesn't even involve you. You know, just let somebody else take care of it. I mean, there are players in this draw who Rafa could face. Um who could do it? People like um, I'm just looking here. 
Yeah, Fanini, I mentioned. Kyrgios is, an, is a possible third-round opponent. Garcia Lopez is somebody a third-round opponent. <laughs> like a really, really hot Troitsky. Or Verdasco, who's already beaten him this year. Goffin coming up later. You know, there are people in there who could take care of Rafa for the field in the first week, and everybody would be giving them big hugs in the locker room. It's, yeah, he's still, it's he's still like the, a guy to beat, even if he's not the favorite. Exactly. And it, it's kind of, I mean, it's not the same because the level of domination is obviously completely different. But it's kind of the same idea of, like, Serena's vulnerable in the first three rounds. And so wouldn't you rather play her then? It's like, no, you don't want to ever have to play her. <laughs> like, you just, you want the field, you want some help from the field to soften things up for you um, to the extent that that's possible. I mean, that's just the nature of competition. Like, this whole idea of, like, I want to play the best. Even Rafa laughs at that idea. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, like, I mean, grant credit to Maria Sharapova for saying that. Granted, it's kind of a weird pat on the back for her to be like, yeah, no, you know, after the Australian Open being like, I want to play the best. That's what you play for. Serena's the best, et cetera, et cetera. I'm pretty sure that she would actually want to hold the trophy as opposed to playing the best, um, given the, the head to head there. So to the extent that you can get help from the field to make your path a little easier, there's no there's nothing wrong with that. People might not say it out loud, but there's nothing wrong with that. But Rafa has said it. He's like, I don't want to have to play Novak if I don't have to play Novak. For pure entertainment. okay. Yeah, totally okay. For pure entertainment. <laughs> that doesn't make him a, like, a lesser competitor. No, it makes him smart. Like, it's just, it you makes should him want... a better competitor. He's like, I'm here not to beat Novak. I'm here to win a trophy. Exactly. You should. Your goal is to walk away with a trophy. And if you get to do it, like he did in Buenos Aires when he played nobody it, at all to reach the to win that title which people like he did want to play title bonus i was like yeah that was like a glorified challenger essentially yeah um he doesn't mind trophy's a trophy title's a title counts like it would count if it was you know beating Federer in the final overall in the record books uh yep. the one the matchup who i would like to see rafa get in the quarters for pure entertainment value is murray i think a murray yeah. rafa quarter would be like the most interesting of the four possibilities burdish is the one if he draws burdish it'll be like nothing ever happened oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Although, who knows? What if Burdick steps up and, like, hands Rafa two straight slam losses? That would be remarkable. That would be so Burdicky. Like, just like, what, dude? <laughs> Explain your career. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. Because I can't. <laughs> Let's transition to the women a little bit by doing a parallel of the top seeds, um, both of whom are Australian Open champions as well. Who would you think, Courtney, is more likely to win the French Open? Novak Djokovic or Serena Williams? That's a really hard question. They're both they're both the favorites betting wise. Yeah, want me to go, for, yeah, me to go no, first? And, yeah, please do. Okay. My answer for this would be Novak Djokovic. When you look at it with Serena, she has still only reached the semifinals once since two thousand three in Paris. She's just not an established, you know, reliable person there whatsoever. And there's just sort of more static in the signal when you're looking at her results this year. There's more weird things. Djokovic has been nothing but reliable in Paris since the weird Kohlschreiber and Meltzer losses a few years ago. Um, And this year, I just think he's a much, much cleaner uh, CV that he brings to Paris. And I would pick him, even if... Uh, there's an obvious person to contend with him in Rafa that Serena doesn't really have that one obvious other person. I mean, the thing is, I, I would almost pick Sharapova as more likely to reach the final because she's going to be an opposite half from Serena. She's been so much steadier in Paris lately, three straight finals. 
obviously the two of them meet, then Maria has no chance, as we know. But on just making it there, I like Maria's odds possibly more than Serena. Which I think I said yeah, in Australia, no, too, that's... and was wrong about. But I guess they did both make it there, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that when you look at just pure consistency, pure level, um, you know, it, it's really hard to argue. I mean, like I said before, like, even though I'm picking Rafa, um, I think it's really hard to argue against Novak. I think that if you're picking Rafa, you're picking Rafa for kind of, you know, ephemeral reasons, you know, legacy reasons, um, reasons that maybe don't necessarily uh, aren't tied to the now in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, like that's, that becomes more difficult. And, and with Serena, I mean, it's tough, right? Because with Novak, if everybody plays at their best, if the field plays at their best, you don't necessarily pick them to win the French. But Serena, like if everybody plays at their best, you obviously pick Serena to win the French, you know, like yeah. in terms of how much better they are than everybody else. So it becomes tougher. I mean, there's more variables there, but yeah, I would agree with you. I'd, I'd probably, if I had to pick between the two, I'd, I'd, I'd pick Novak right now. There we go. Let's talk about Maria Sharapova, the other Rome champion, who won a what I thought was a really fun final, really high quality, at least in the first uh, set for sure, and then got interesting, at least in the second, before she ran away with it in the third, against Carlos Suarez Navarro, winning 4-6, 7-5, 6-1. Pova just won her 11th clay court title, tying her for most active clay titles in the WTA with Serena. Pova three straight French Open finals, three Rome titles now after all this do you believe more I sort of like I've accepted it like it's one of those like if I'm like a kid in science class who still doesn't understand something works like gravity or something like yeah I get that gravity is a thing I don't have to understand how it works and take it apart and explain it to know that it is there I guess that's the thing I have with Claypova now yeah, no, I mean, I accept it. I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. And I mean, and it's, and it's incredible what she's been able to do. I think that when you look back, um, and I'd be curious, I don't know if I've ever asked Maria this, but I'd be curious to know whether or not, because she won Wimbledon of all the majors, she won Wimbledon as her first major at 17 years old, right? That's her breakout. Mm-hmm. So that obviously then completely colors how people can sit, like view your game. Like, right, the, automatically people assume, okay, she hits hard, she hits flat. Um, it's going to be faster surfaces that are going to, you know, feed into her game. And, and she's going to be that kind of player, right? Um, and so they, it, it, and obviously she doesn't help it when she says cow on ice and all these sorts of things. Um, but it's not completely illogical for her to be good on clay just like i still to this day i'm convinced that petra kvitova can win the french open she's always like for me like in my head a player that i put in like the top five favorites to win the french um just because i think that hey it gives her time it gives the ball sits there she can clock it she can hit through heavy conditions um hit through a slow court on a cold day if need to all that sort of stuff. So it's not like super shocking. So I totally accept Claypova. I just kind of giggle at it is all. I just think it's funny because it it, it, it it still doesn't completely make sense. But She compared herself today to Bambi on ice, which I'm not sure is really an upgrade. She's like, I'm getting better. I'm Bambi or something. It's like, not, that's not really better. No, <laughs> Neither of those not. animals had, had ice success to their names. Um, yeah, no, I think that she is. She's there and her... Setting it, she can lose to more people when she's playing well than Serena can, but 
just in terms of having a complete meltdown day out of nowhere, I think she's proven steadier at the French for that. So important to remember that Maria Sharapova is a confidence player, just like all, almost all players are, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like she very much is. And at this point, she really does kind of believe in the concept of Klaipova. Like, she knows she can win on this stuff, obviously, because she has. So when she goes in and in those tight moments when, you know, she is in a third set against Suarez Navarro or, and she's down a break, you know, like in that final set, she still has that belief and that calm. And, and there isn't the panic. Whereas, weirdly, you do see that panic sometimes on hard courts. You definitely see it on grass nowadays um, because those are where the, the results are a little bit more inconsistent to slash non-existent. Um, and so... Yeah, on clay, there's no reason for her not to step on a court and say, you know, yeah, hey, hey, Paris, I'm, I've been here on, you know, the final Saturday, you know, three straight times. Why wouldn't I be there the four straight time? Indeed. Uh, quick shout out also to the runner up in Rome, Carla Suarez Navarro, making her second big final of the year after Miami. And I was sort of worried for this final because after I realized that Serena's a different different proposition and different beasts altogether um, after she got killed by Serena in the Miami final, that it might be another sort of a stage fright situation today, but Carla was great. And really, I do think put herself on at not, if not a short list, then a very much other ones to watch in Paris. I mean, if the draw goes her way, I think the only person she can't challenge is Serena. So if she avoids Serena in the draw, which most people will, up until the final, if Serena makes it that far, that I think Carla absolutely can make another deep run and cement her, what has been a really stealthily unreal year for her and real yeah. driver's seat to Singapore. Look, I mean, last year you had um, uh, Pekovic take advantage of, of a really uh, busted draw yeah, really to make busted. the semifinals last year. And, and last year it, could, it really should have been Carla in the uh, semifinal instead of uh, Bouchard. Yeah. Um, because it was Bouchard and Suarez Navarro. I think Suarez Navarro had, I don't know if she had match points or she was definitely in a winning position numerous times. Up in the third, at least, um, yeah. Yeah, in that match. And so um, you thought that that was supposed to be hers to win. So she's right there, and, and you're right. I mean, you beat Halep in three sets. You turn around, you take Sharapova two three sets um, in, in, in Rome. That's pretty darn quality stuff. So, um, yeah, it's been a nutso year for Carlos Suarez Navarro. I'd like to see her win, maybe not the French Open, but like a big title to just kind of cast aside this idea that, that yeah, she's kind of a knock on the door, but not open it kind of player, you know, because she made that final in Antwerp and then couldn't play the final, um, giving the walk over to Petkovic and then obviously uh, got her butt handed to her in Miami. Um, and then here a little bit closer, but still couldn't, uh, couldn't close out and got virtual bageled in that final set. She was clearly tanked and exhausted from the amount of work that she had to put in throughout the week. Um, but yeah, if, if, if Carlos Suarez Navarro can get through her first three or four matches, uh, especially three matches in Paris in straight sets on and off the court, no big deal. And then she's probably going to play doubles with Muguruza, I would she presume. Is. She said she will. Yep. Yeah. So that's also, I mean, I, I do worry a little bit sometimes about her energy management. And she was playing a lot more aggressive, like especially saw it against Halep. Like anytime she got any opening, she was going for a winner and usually making it. Like she was really, really good at picking her spots. Now and there is that more aggressive tilt, which will keep her in some, which will make her matches shorter than they might have been in years past when she was more of a pure defensive just grinder. 
Um, there's a lot more killer instinct with Carla now, and it's pretty cool. I mean, she had three top ten wins in Rome. She beat uh, Halep, Kvitova, and Bouchard, came close to a fourth. She, going into the final, uh, she had as many top ten wins this year, nine, as the top four players combined. Wow. pretty cool stat. That's from Anna K. Forever Oleg. So, solid stat there. And if she had won today, uh, she would have more than them. But now she, obviously, Chirpova gets one top ten win over Carla herself. So, that doesn't exist anymore. But still, nine top ten wins in the year on for Carla. Pretty massive. And over a lot of different players, too. It's not like she had one pigeon to speak of. Speaking of Sharapova, we got a question um, from Mark Belcher. The kind of questions we get a lot on various platforms. Um, and since she played Azarenka this week, even though this, is, this will, people are probably rolling their eyes now, I do think it is worth talking about. And I guess Mark is referring to Sharapova complaining about the crowd making noise during the Gavrilova semifinal. Um, he says, I contemplated the irony of Maria Sharapova complaining that the crowd was noisy. It came to me grunting. Why is nothing done? Why don't opponents complain? Is it not covered by the hindrance rule? I understand that the rule covers a deliberate act of the opponent, but so and so on. Um, fans hate it. It robs certain very successful players and the sport itself of credibility, and it takes the sport away from the version played by fans themselves. If someone made a noise about it at any normal tennis club, they'd most likely be ridiculed and asked to stop by the other players on neighboring courts. Given all this, why do the tourists do nothing? Um, it goes to the back of the theme of recent podcasts, which is selective application of the rules. The fact that Sharapova, for whom brand and image are so important, continues to do it, even though it might hurt her image, suggests she doesn't trust herself to win without doing so. I don't mean to suggest it is not an issue on the men's tour as well, but the most obvious culprits are WTA players. I know this is this issue is a bit of an old chestnut, but to me, it's the anabolic steroid of encore behavior. Thanks, Mark. Ooh, strong analogy. Not just, strong analogy. Not just steroid, but anabolic one. Anabolic, yeah. So... Gord, I, I've we've talked about this obviously. We've done 105 episodes plus of the show. Grunting has come up before. I, I do think the tour should have cracked down on it long ago and ruled it out. And like we said, we do get these emails from people all the time. It's not a non-issue. It really isn't. Right. I personally can tune it out. I watch a lot of tennis. It doesn't bother me. The noises um, just have become part and parcel. Uh, of the game I do think you know a lot of the complaints um, sometimes when people bring it up or the way or the manner or the language in which they voice their uh, complaints or opinions about the noise level during uh, women's matches um, do come from a sexist place um, just that the, the tenor and the tone of the noise that's being made just hurts your ear and okay fine uh, but that being said regardless of whether or not complaints about grunting in tennis are sexist or not sexist and there are non-sexist reasons to not like it which is basically like it just hurts my ears i don't like it it's not pleasant to watch um it is a very real i think issue for the wta from a marketing perspective um you know anyone who covers tennis gets a slew of emails and it is or tweets or whatever it is um from people saying that they will not watch they will mute commentary they will um, you know, oh, they'll change the channel. They'll do a bunch of different things. And that's not good for the tour. I mean, it, to the extent that, that that feedback is is coming in to the WTA and you have sponsors who are like, wait a second, like I'm paying X amount 
to sponsor your tour or to sponsor this tournament um, and or to sponsor these players. And fans are turning off the television. Like, I'm not going to get the value from my investment simply because, you know, a certain subset of players likes to grunt. That's not fair. We need to do something about it. What can the tour do about it? That becomes the issue for me. I, I think that, and I totally get the critiques for Sharapova, for Azarenka. Uh, they're, you know, often the the, the most um, cited offenders. Even Serena and Venus, the selective grunting. Um, Although they've gone way down to ignore that in years, yeah. They have, but it's still Serena. there. And when it happens, especially with Serena, and when it happens, it's incredibly noticeable because it's not something. It's not white noise when Serena does it. It's weirdly white noise when Vika and Maria do it to me. Because they do it all the time. So I just, it's habit. I just zone out. Um, but when Serena does it, it's like, oh, what's going on now? Like, you know, like something important is happening. Serena's getting into it. Um, but but I think that a lot of it is with the WTA having, you know, cracking down on the lower levels, from the junior levels, from the younger players, and kind of just waiting for the older generation that have been allowed to do this to kind of move on. And so if this is something that the WT has to put up with for the next however long, I guess, more that Maria's going to play or Vika's going to play, then maybe you just kind of put up with it and, and, and but really educate and crack down on the junior ranks and, and make sure that it's not tolerated on that level. But but I don't know. I mean, can you I, go I, to an Azarenka? Can you go to a Serena? Can you go to a Maria and say you can't do it? I don't I, know. I, I think 100% you can. I do think that the WTA it's lucky or successful, however you want to call it, in that they don't seem to be any of the young guns who we're looking at now, any of the current crop 22 and under of relevant players who I can think of who make a lot of noise. I can't does think Muka of... Rutsa have a, does, 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 does Rutsa does. That's, that's right. A, she, does do, yeah. she does make some noise, actually. You're right about Garbine. That's right. Um, but in general, I do think if Stacey Allister wanted to send out a memo to them tomorrow saying, starting in 2016, January 1st, 2016, any, you know... Grunt deemed excessive will be a point penalty. Deal with it. I think she'd be totally within her rights, and the players would deal with it. They would suck it up. That's, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. You think don't know. you think Sheriff would, would retire in protest? I don't think she'd retire, but I think that she would make the WTA's life a living hell with respect to using Maria. Sh- Maria Sharapova is bigger than the WTA, just like she's just like Serena's bigger than the WTA. I mean, you, you look at those two particular. If those two players, and in, in 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 that way, I think those two players can drive policy within WTA. So I think that with Sharapova, you're in a situation where you are the WTA. You need Maria to do all of these WTA videos and sponsorship suite visits and all of these things to support the tour. And if you kind of do something where you are going up against her or going up against a Serena or any other player that has that sort of cachet, I think you do risk, um, you know, a backlash from the player. No, they're not going to retire, but there are things that can affect the bottom line in in different ways. And I think that, you know, if, 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 if the tour has the cojones to stand up and say, we don't care, then that's pretty that's pretty impressive. I just don't know that in real life <laughs> that that's a decision that can actually be made. Uh, let's go to one other perennial WTA topic, which is encore coaching. Um, Jeannie Bouchard managed to win a match this week, which was a big accomplishment for her. She beat Serena Diaz going up 5-0 in the second, a set in 5-0, and then struggling to close it out eventually 6-4. 
Um, in the next match, she played Carla Suarez Navarro, and her coach Sam Sumick came on to for an encore coaching timeout without a working microphone attached to him, which is a violation of the WTA rules. So our reader listener Zach Ewan asks us, should Sumick be fined for taking off his microphone during coaching timeouts? And obviously, Gordon, this is not the first time he's done this. He did it with Azarenka famously as well. What should we do with Mikeless Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think that you either fine him or you revoke his on-court coaching privileges, but it shouldn't be ignored. Um, we can talk all the way, all we want about whether or not people like or dislike on-court coaching, um, but the whole reason that on-court coaching exists is because it's supposed to provide, theoretically, entertainment to fans at home. It gives commentators something to talk about. It gives some insight to the fans at home. It is not, and it was not implemented as a measure because we wanted to help the players by giving them coaching. Right. So if you take off the mic, you are going against the whole reason that this whole rule is ex- is existing. So if Sam Sumick wants to give his charge advice, great. Feel free to do so. That's well within your right. But you got to wear the freaking mic <laughs> like there's just no way around it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he's a like you said, he's a multiple offender. I don't know why or if the WTA has cracked down um, before. I don't know if they've ever fined him because he's done it before. Um, but I don't know if anything's ever been done in the past. But, you know, maybe you take away, you know, his uh, on-court coaching privileges for five tournaments or uh, whatever it is or or you fine him. But and if maybe maybe if you're Sumic, you say, fine, I'll take the fine. I will pay you. And in order for me to not have to, like, wear the mic, they actually might do it. So maybe it is the maybe it should just be I think the suspension but, is the way to go. Revoking privileges. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that totally. I mean, it's just it's there for insight for broadcasting was the whole reason behind it happening um yeah and if you don't like, want no if you, justification if you, to ignore it no if you don't want to be broadcast what you say sam then just don't go out there if you if you think it's not worth it then just don't do it but ben, breaking the rules so clearly not not cool um and just not just should not be tolerated again wta Stand up for yourselves. You can do this. We believe in you. It's your rule. It's okay. And I don't think that in this situation, Asumic is in a situ is in a position to be like, no, like you know, like he's not he's not somebody I don't I think that, that can dictate policy. Nor do I think that, you know, like a genie can dictate policy at this point in her career. Yeah. Um, this is something that can be nipped in the bud. And also, like if you let it happen, like why would any coach, like mic themselves up? Right. Like if you let if you let Sumit get away with it, if I'm Sven Gronefeld, why the hell would I go out there with a mic on? Yeah. So you there has to be some sort of punitive action. Otherwise, all you know, everybody's just going to do it because there, no coach wants like what their advice, you know, how they talk to their charge and the advice that they give to be broadcast to everyone to laugh at, to pick at, to gift, you know, or to make, you know, audio files of or become like running memes like nobody wants that. But that's the that's the, the the trade-off to allowing you to um, to speak to your to to your people. So, you know, just be cool. Wear the freaking mic, <laughs> or don't come down. After being on a little bit of a sporadic hiatus, we're going to bring back our beloved drag sleigh segment for this week. Courtney, let's do it. The player who we named as the slayer this week who just slayed everything is daria gavrilova 
Miss Gavrilova, who, yeah, made her first WTA semifinal um, this week. Um, and just kind of, she didn't tear through the draw. She had to, like, work her butt off um, to get through this draw. Um, came It was a qualifier. Yeah. Korean, so I had to do her her pre-tournament work um, qualifying. And then in the first round, beats Belinda Bencic, uh, 6-7, 7-5, 6-2. Then turns around, upsets Anna Ivanovic. Uh, five seven seven six seven six. Good then match. beats Tamea Bachinski six four seven six. Then beats Christina McHale, which was a walkover McHale got from Serena, um, who withdrew six two six four. And then played a pretty darn good match against uh, Maria Sharapova. It must be said it was a straight set loss, but um, obviously Gavrilova, who beat Sharapova uh, in Miami earlier this year, but this time goes down seven five six three. But incredibly impressive. Just I don't know where she gets her energy. Um, I have no idea how she was able to turn it around every single day and play like with just such intensity and um and quality. But uh, but yeah, what what more can I say about Daria Gavrilova? You were there, Ben. You got a front row seat to the Daria show. I could totally agree what with the energy. I could totally agree with the energy thing. And I have some. I talked to her after she beat um Bachinsky, uh, which was a huge one. Probably in my mind, almost the most surprising of all the wins with how well Bachinsky played and how Bachinsky had totally dismantled Pliskova earlier in the week. I didn't see that match. It was out on a non-TV court uh, during a bunch of other matches. People who did see it said they thought Pachinski probably should have won it on some level. Um, but it was a huge, huge week for Daria. She's top 20 in the race now. Kit's no joke. For someone who started the year outside top 200, she's been unreal. <laughs> like you said, her energy is incredible. Like she is like a total spark plug on and off court. This is like boundless bounciness i think that's what people referring to her as like a bu- like nickname her the bunny just totally totally fair she's just like hopping around doing her thing always smiling always happy and playing some incredible fearless ball along the way too so she's definitely one to watch someone who we knew was a junior number one for a while and had totally with whatever injury illness concern she had um hadn't made the transition at all and so for her making up for lost time this year is really really impressive and the crowd loved her on in the center court of Rome, like the previous question. One of the previous questions alluded to, they were really, really backing her against Sharapova. And the kind of shot-making she does with her bounciness, it's just really electric and fun to watch. So if she's considered part of the young Aussie contingent, that includes Kyrgios Kokonakis. They're a very rich, thick days ahead for them. Yeah, she was great. And uh, she's she kind of... Makes me think of like a a a, a positive, happy Yulia Putinseva. <laughs> and they, they they kind of they kind of are fueled. It seems like in the same way. They're both and, spark and kind plugs, of have, yeah. Yeah, and and kind of have like the same mannerisms at times. Um, but but Gavrilova's is kind of like a, a a charmingness. There's a charmingness about it, and a joy, um, and kind of yeah. an innocence and a joy. Yeah, exactly. She's kind of she just fuses joy. So she's just really fun to watch and. Um, uh, so good on her, and, and looking forward to seeing if she can she can kind of carry it through for the rest of the year. Definitely, the drag this week is someone who's had a fairly draggy year altogether, a pretty disappointing year, pretty disappointing uh, eight months I would say really since uh, doing okay in Canada I guess last year. The drag this week, Courtney is Grigor Dimitrov. Grigor's like had, he's had a bad Ugh. year. It's been Ugh. quietly terrible. terrible. Yeah, really, really bad. I mean, he's he's basically staying afloat because of his Wimbledon semifinal points. Yeah, 
Um, and winning queens, which is, right, back to back. And winning queens, right, but basically grass. Um, yeah. But wow, I mean, why did we pick Grigor this week as opposed to any other week? Grigor Dimitrov got bageled by Fabio Fanini. Things not to do in life, that. Just don't. That match, was, that match was unreal, <laughs> the atmosphere in that match. Like, the, Roman, sure, the yeah. Romans embraced him, Fanini, like, at last. He'd always been kind of a prodigal son. He'd, you know... They booed him off the court last year, and they just went all in for him. They kept putting him out on Pietrangeli, which was really smart. And so you got these, like, really raucous, like, young, very testosterone-filled crowds. They were just going nuts for Finini. And Grigor put up with it for a while, and then was like, I've had it. And it's just Grigor is getting – that's the second time at least he's gotten bageled in the final seven match this year. He also got bageled by Ryan Harrison in Acapulco, who has not done sidebar, not done much since Acapulco at all. Um, yeah, Grigor – is looking like the boat might be leaving the harbor, at least for the short term, on him being a next big thing. And he's just not keeping up with Ronich or Nishikori whatsoever this year. And he was already behind those guys last year yeah, in terms of, of it, it, development. It, it, and, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, I, I just think that, that, you know, there's questions about his coaching. There's all the racket experimentation. There's just a lot going on. And the results have just been – he's 18-10 and 10 on the season going into last week. So it's, what, probably – 20 and 11 now no 19 and 11 now yeah um for the season and uh oh no it's 18 and 10 this takes it takes roman in, into account but um it's just not not a whole lot of convincing play from him this year so i mean he was number five in the race to london last year in canada it's that i remember he didn't make it and yeah now just not in the picture i don't know i think i do think a coaching change might well be in order for him. I think Roger Rashid did an incredible job at getting him into fighting shape and getting him physically ready to be a top guy. And it's a huge improvement that he needed desperately. But sort of take that next step for match toughness and mental fitness and week in, week out consistency, I'm not sure. I think he just needs a different voice at this point because he's really plateauing or going downhill. Yeah, I think that he needs a, 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 not necessarily a different – I think that Rashid was great, again, agree with you, on physicality and mental toughness and all of those kind of little lessons. But I think that he needs somebody different on the tactical side. I think that he needs somebody who's a little bit – can help him use his tools and give him some some patterns to use because right now he's just – he's really unfocused. And that's not necessarily because Rashid's like not – good as a coach it's just that there comes a point where maybe you just kind of stop listening to your coach because you've heard it all before yeah so if you just need he's or he if he can hear it from somebody else um you know then maybe that would that would do him better but right now he's tied for 14th in in the race to london tied with kevin anderson behind john isner behind Gilles simon behind guillermo garcia lopez behind monfils um just ahead of high actually yeah i know um just ahead of gasquet uh, just ahead of Tomic. So, you know, and Gasquet has been like out for since Indian Wells until a few weeks ago. So, yeah. um, just not, not a good season for Grigor. He needs to, he needs to sort things out and, uh, time is ticking because the grass season is coming. So we got a question that required some work from Dennis TMDC, who asks us for our predicted last eight of the French Open regardless of draw, and also taking into account which players, therefore, take into account which players are ripe for upsets. So these are just sort of, we'll do a, a draw show when the draw comes out later in the week, and just programming note, we'll have 
different program than usual up to and during the French, which we'll figure out more of <laughs> later. But for now, Courtney, gut feeling. Let's start with the men. Who do you have okay. as your last eight, your quarterfinalists, regardless of draw? Who are the most likely eight guys to get there, in your opinion? Okay. Uh, I'm going to go Novak, Rafa, uh, Andy, Roger, Kay, Ferrer, Stan, and Gael. Yeah. Mine is, it's not exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to go curveball and go Fonini. No, no, not to the quarters. No, I have, let me see. I have Novak, Roger, Andy. I have Burditch. You didn't have Burditch. Um, no. Nisha Corey, Nadal, Ferrer, Gael. So I don't have Stan. I have Burdick so, for yeah, Stan. Which is fair. That I can see that I can see that trade for Burdick for Stan. Burdick has been so solid um, this year. Like he just isn't yeah, losing he, bad matches, and Stan has. So Stan has. Stan has. Uh, but I there's a part of me that thinks, well, what if he goes through this week and he has a pretty confidence boosting week in, in Geneva? Just pick up a few wins. He doesn't have to win the tournament, but just play as a consistent level. I think that'll put him in a good position for the final or yeah. for uh, the French. Interesting having a top guy play the week before a slam. We don't see that much. Yeah, I know, exactly. I mean, he's number nine, but, you know, even then we don't see a big, it. A big check. I would hope so. And he probably just wants to, it's the first time they've had a, a tournament in French Switzerland in a while. So Very true. So nice for him. Um, the ladies. I'll, I'll go first. Why don't, you, why don't, you, take the lady, uh, why don't yeah. you take the ladies and I'll follow you. Yeah. So I have Serena, Sharapova, Halep, Wozniacki, Suarez Navarro, Petkovic, Muguruza and Bachinski. Interesting. A little bit, got a little bit more of a, a shift here. Okay. Um, I have Serena, Maria Sharapova, Simona Halep, uh, Carla Suarez Navarro, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Caroline Wozniacki, Angelique Kerber, and Tamea Bachinski. That's pretty similar. So basically, we swap Kerber and Petko, and mm-hmm. I have. Um, you have Muguruza, I have uh, Kuznetsova. Right. Yeah, and I thought about Kuznetsova, too. I mean, Kuznetsova obviously can make the quarters of any French Open anytime. Mm-hmm. But she can I also... Just, I have not been... But I haven't been convinced with Muguruza's form lately. She's been diabolical since uh, since February. Good work. So, yeah. So I'm, 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 I think she's great, and I think that she should, you know, do well. I just I haven't seen the, the track record to show that she's playing her best tennis at the moment. Um, so that's why I put in Kuznetsova instead. But... Um, but yeah, I think we're generally on the same page in, with respect to kind of the ten best clay players right now. Yeah, and on who, the men and, and women's men's and women's side, especially on the women's side, like who we're not picking. Like you did not hear yeah. about Ivanovic, you did not hear Bouchard, you did not hear um, Makarova. Yeah, so we're on the same page. Ivanska. Yeah, yeah, definitely not Ivanska. No way. Um, so especially it wasn't going to be on clay regardless this year. We'll and also, like, you know, yeah. no no Pliskova, no Safaro, you know, like, the big... Well, you know what's who's interesting that we not, neither of us picked was Petra. That's true. I just... And yeah. She just won Madrid. <laughs> she did win Madrid, which is all about Madrid. I mean, the way she lost to Carla, she just kind of... Carla kind of toyed with her, and she looked so over it. She was like, yeah, I have my clay title. I'm going home. Goodbye. Yeah. So. But which is to say that if I were to pick, like, a player who's, like, my ninth man on the bench, it would be a Petra. Always. Like where I'm like, I don't know if I can bet on you, but you're in there. I just want to, for the record, I think you can do great things. I just, you know, you're not on my starting eight. There you go. 
what sport has eight? I don't know. I just, you know, I started using the bench analogy and then I just kind of had to stick with it. And I was hoping that nobody would notice. (laughs) Because in my, it was funny too, because once I said it, I was like, why didn't we go with top nine? (laughs) Nine would have been good. Five. Anyways. All right. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, so thank you guys very much for listening to episode 105. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. You can send us questions for upcoming shows, no challenges remaining, at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us reviews on iTunes. We like those. And whatever else your podcasting platform of choice is, RSS feed, whatever you can get us new episodes automatically that way you can also follow us individually on twitter at ben rothenberg at 40 deuce twits and we like that as well we're going to close out with our rant rave segment of the show and i will go first just because mine is really obvious that i am leaving tomorrow for eurovision in vienna which i am it's more of like an anticipatory rave i don't have anything to rave about yet but I'm just raving for the possibility of future raves, thinking that this will be something that's been sort of a long time coming for me. I've been a big Eurovision fan since 2008, really. And so to be able to finally fit it in, I'm super, super excited about. I am mitigating that excitement by saying this is one of the worst Eurovision fields of songs that I can remember in at least over a decade, in that there's so many songs that take themselves so, so seriously are just sort of like, droopy and maudlin there's this really awful hungarian song about like you know how we all the world needs peace and humanity to come together and it's like in this really slow tone anyway i'm hoping that the eurovision glitter magic fairy princess can rescue some of these songs and turn them into beautiful eurovision butterflies on stage but i think even bad eurovision will be unbelievable so i'm excited i'm very excited for this and I will definitely have lots to say about it on the next show, I'm sure. So more of a preview than a typical rave, but just know that I'm feeling ravey. So is there no, like, equivalent to the Dutch song that I liked last year? Um, no, there are some There are some decent songs. Um, the one that's probably closest to that is Estonia as a duet, too, um, which is sort of, like, about these, like, couple, like, waking up and deciding which one of them should walk out on the other. I don't know. It's sort of interesting. Um, the the two big favorites. That's right up my alley. I know, right? Thematically. <laughs> <laughs> the the two big favorites are Italy and Sweden. And I'm at least hoping that. And I'll probably make. I can probably suggest Italy being the outro for this episode because it's Italy and Rome, etc. Um, but I'm hoping that it's at least like a really close score in the vote because we haven't had like a relatively even remotely nail-biting vote since 2003. So if not, you know, great quantity of great songs, I hope there's at least, like, a photo finish in the scoring to make the voting at least interesting. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm, I'm just hoping that you have yourself a damn fine time. Thank you. Are you going to watch from Paris? Are you going to host your own Eurovision party? No. I, I was, oh, boy can dream. You you forget. I, I do not. I, do not. <laughs> I, do, I cannot and I do not. <laughs> Okay, cool. So what what is your rave then? 
Uh, so my rave, well, no, I think I'm going to rave on this one. My rave is for this um, this piece that I read, very long read, actually. It took me, like, a while to get through it. Um, in The New Yorker, I guess it's in this week's issue, possibly, um, that's called uh, Tomorrow's Advance Man. And it's this uh, long profile about a guy named Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark Andreessen, if you are a techno geek he's kind of like one of the gods of the internet um he invented netscape navigator oh wow effectively and um and so he's been there at the very beginning and anyways um we all know kind of what happened with netscape navigator uh it was the he basically invented the internet browser as we know it microsoft started to bundle internet explorer into microsoft os and basically put netscape navigator out of business i think it was eventually bought by aol or something like that but Obviously, he still made a ton of money, even if it was kind of a soul-crushing experience for him. He now has a venture capital fund um, in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, so the whole uh, article is just about the, that fund, about him, about kind of his vision for the future and for the world and how he's using his venture fund to kind of do that, right? I mean, you can back uh, different um, startups based off of what the idea you know, kind of life-changing or world-changing technology uh, you think they may or may not have. Um, and it's an, I don't know, it's a profile and an article that really stuck with me. I've been talking to it a lot um, with a lot of my different family members. We're all kind of tech and gadget people. Um, so, and it's been really interesting to get different people's opinions about it. And in particular, there's kind of this whole section where he really, Mark Andreessen is one of those guys who gen, who genuinely believes that technology can like just reinvent the world change the world help the world evolve um that humanity is actually holding humanity back and that if we can get technology to a place where it can basically take over the process of things um that the and we will have better end results of things and so and in that society will move forward and humanity will move forward that kind of freaks me out a little bit because I am very much about the process. Like I think that he kind of ignores the fact that the process is the joy for a lot of people. So if, for example, like, you know, the best example is like, okay, the development of MP3s, MP3s are great. They're so convenient. Now people listen to more music, exchange music. People um, have access to all the music in the world. That is fantastic on some level. But what have you lost? You've lost the experience of music, which is back in the day, you know, from the old record store days of going and going record hunting or um, whatever. And and the experience of the hunt was really, really fun and, and was really what was some of my, my greatest memories when I was growing up. And I just kind of am like, oh, he's kind of he doesn't want that process anymore. He wants to make everything easy and let computers handle the creation and making and curating of things. But anyways, I mean, that's a sidebar and a very small portion of the article but i just think that if you're interested in kind of that all of that stuff it's just an incredible read it's really dense if you're interested in like how venture capitalism works how the silicon how the culture within silicon valley um and it works it's a great read and i think on the whole people should be interested in knowing how this tiny little suburb um in the south bay of the bay area is basically deciding like the future of technology and that's a really scary thing 
in a lot of ways. And so these are the people who are making those decisions. So once you kind of get into their heads, it's pretty illuminating, sometimes frightening, sometimes hopeful. But um, yeah, it's really great. And we'll include a link to the article um, in the write-up. So do give it a read. And if you want to chat about it, hit me up on Twitter. I love that we had a rave about venture capitalism. That's so classy <laughs> of us. Aren't we? It's I think amazing, so. Right? That never yeah, would have come yeah. from me. So credit to you. Good work. And yeah, I mean that in the best right. way. Um, so yeah. check that out, guys. We will talk to you as the French Open after the French Open draw comes out. Uh, stay tuned. Stay on your toes from the episodes. We will not be sticking to just the every Tuesday thing during the French. We'll do stuff, but it will be figured out in some other way along the way. So get excited for that, and we will see you in Paris. Au revoir. Hola. Hola. I said au revoir. Oh, I thought you said hola, like hello oh, in see, Spanish. That's how good my French is. Even an English-speaking French, like a, a, a English a English-speaking person who speaks French, can't even understand my accent in French. Yeah. So, oh, that is the worst. Cardinals fans set Guinness World Record for most selfies taken simultaneously. Oh, you should be disbanded as a sporting franchise. <laughs> I, um, I actually, you know how they, everyone bans selfie sticks now on the rationale that like someone will get injured by one? which I think is mm-hmm. ridiculous. I almost got injured by one in Rome. Somebody like, really? turned quickly and like almost hit me in the face with their selfie stick. That was like Dude. easy Italian person. What easy. a terrible way to die. <laughs> or like to I'd lose much, an eye. I'd much rather get champagne corked. Oh, I would so rather get corked. than Because then at least that's a story like, yeah, this really amazing thing happened and I was celebrating and I shot my eye out is so much better than... I was walking down the street and some old lady poked me in the eye with a selfie stick. Yeah, that's not good. Like, who wants to die from a fad? That's like having, like, oh, a, fa- so a, f- a fatal pogs accident or something. Yeah, that's not good. Not great. Um, okay, so... It would be a commentary death, though. Like, It would be. That is very true. That's how I plan I'm looking to go. At Some sort of commentary. It's like the opposite of like that Smith's line where it's like, oh, what a heavenly way to die. It's like, this is the opposite of that.